any conservation work, uh, you have to include the local communities. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hi, hello, hi. Welcome to the podcast that today features not one, not two, but five poop stories. Poop story. The Rossafari Podcast. Y'all, I'm going to be super quick on this intro because this is a very long but very good episode. I was recently invited to the Akron Zoo to go and preview the new Wild Asia area that will be opening on May 29th. The new area features red pandas, tigers, and gibbons. The exhibits themselves are incredible with multiple viewing areas and a lot of really neat innovative stuff going on for both the animals and the people watching them. So today, my preview of Wild Asia becomes your preview of Wild Asia. I'm going to be taking you there with me, and uh, we're doing this in a big way today. I have small interviews, mini-interviews, let's call them interviews, with Tyler, the lead tiger keeper, Brenna, the lead gibbons keeper, and Lisa, the lead red panda keeper. As if that isn't enough, I also sat down with Elena in marketing, who set this whole thing up for me and also took me on the private tour of Wild Asia, to discuss the exhibits and how they are going to be really working hard to make sure that this area is not only great for the animals and the guests, but also does a great job illustrating Asian culture without engaging in cultural appropriation. Akron did this one right, y'all. Normally, I would spend more intro time telling you all about the amazing time I had at the zoo, but you're going to hear all about it in the interviews. So here's a quick reminder. At Raw Safari on Instagram and Facebook, at Raw Safari Pod on TikTok, and you can email me at rawsafaripod at gmail.com. And with that said, without further ado, here are my interviews with Tyler, Brenna, Lisa, and Elena as we go to the Akron Zoo and head deep into wild Asia. All right, so why don't you tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here? My name is Tyler McCullough, and I am a wild animal keeper here at the Akron Zoo. Awesome, and uh, what what's kind of your main animal? Uh, I am kind of the primary keeper of the Sumatran tigers which will be in Wild Asia when it opens. And that's right. The The reason we are here today uh, is because Wild Asia is going to be opening soon, so we're going to be talking all about that. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself first, though. How did you get into keeping? Yeah, uh, so like, you know, a lot of people here, the zookeepers, I had a passion for animals growing up, and then I'm from Pennsylvania, a small town, western Pennsylvania, and I went to Penn State University, same. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, Nitty Lions, we are. And then, <laughs> uh, quite frankly, I didn't even, Akron didn't know they had a, you know, zoological park. But you get out of college, you start applying wherever you can. And Akron called, and I was like, all right, why not? It's only an hour away from home. 
But that was 10 years ago at this point, so here I am still. That's awesome. I love, I love stories when people stay at a place for a while, because that's not easy with zoos, especially with your first job. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's very cool. All right, so tell me, you've been here for 10 years, but Wild Asia is just opening. So yes. what have you been doing here for the past decade? Just waiting for the tigers to show up? So we, we did have tigers, you know, for a while, and then we had the tigers and the lions in the same building, and then when they renovated Africa, we moved the lions up there, up the hill, and then with Asia, we're waiting for that to open. So we kind of moved the lions, and then we sent the tigers to other institutions, but I'm also, I handle the snow leopards and jaguars in Legends of the Wild, so I've been doing that and then kind of taking care of getting the tiger areas ready. Okay, very cool. Let's um, let's step away from Wild Asia for just a second. Tell yes. me about your snow leopards because this zoo yes. is my favorite snow leopard okay. zoo. And I was here the first time, I think, two or three years ago, uh, the first day that a cub went on exhibit. And mm-hmm. I just, I this is this is a zoo that I've always associated with snow leopards. So tell me about your snow leopards. Yeah, we have Shanti, who is an amazing mother. You know, she's had a lot of cubs here for us, and. She's really helped this SSP with snow leopards because all of her cubs have been able to go to other institutions and breed and just le- really get that genetic diversity going. So we, you know, she's very popular. She's a fan favorite. Everyone here knows her and loves her. So we have her and then Tai Long, who's also, you know, he's been here a couple of years. We had Roscoe before, but they're all, you know, everyone enjoys them. And Shanti is such a great mom to all these cubs that she's had. I have a funny story. So the last time I was here, um, I didn't know which snow leopard was out. Okay, so yeah. I, I looked at one of the keepers and, um, and you know, the, the snow leopard was all curled up in a ball. I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell. Um, and so one of the keepers happened to be walking by and I was like, uh, what, which snow leopard is this? And, and she looked at me and went, Shanti. And there was just this slight moment of like, how do you not yeah. know? And it yeah. was just really funny because she, she smiled and she was very cool. But there was that mm-hmm. moment of like, Everyone should know Shanti. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's we're amazed when somebody doesn't know that that Shanti's leg there because he always plays on that hot rock. So, yep. so tell me what it's like um, to take care of snow leopards because I know that they are protected contact, mm-hmm. and um, you know that that can have some complications with building a relationship in some ways. But clearly, y'all have a great relationship with your snow leopards. So, tell me about that. We do. Yeah, we do a lot of training, and it's just a lot of that. You know. The more you work with an animal, the more you get to know them, you get to know their corks, and they get to know you as a human, and that helps out a lot, and Shanti, you know, she's so, she loves people so much that she makes it easier to train her, so we can do so many things with her. We, every pregnancy she's had, we've been able to ultrasound her to where she literally, like, lays on a box and lets our vet staff go in and kind of, like, poke and prod her and literally do ultrasounds on her stomach and uterus. That's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing everything. We can do tail blood draws from her. You know, you name it, she'll pretty much do it for us. So That's awesome. Um, now, talk to me about the exhibit that they're in for a minute. Because mm-hmm. um, one of the few negative things that I have heard here, and I know it's not true, so I just want to dispel this myth on the podcast, yes. is that it is a, a smaller-looking space than maybe some cat habitats, but there's also a ton of vertical space. So, so talk to me about that a little bit. Exactly. You know, in the, where they're from, in, it's a very mountainous region, so, and snow leopards, they have those long tails and those big feet because they do climb, they're up from the mountains, so it's, we have a more vertical habitat than we do horizontal, because they do, if you ever come here and you see Ty, our male, he likes to spend most of his time up top, 
So that's why we have it more vertical than linear or horizontal so that they can get up high. And, and it's nice too because they can kind of see the whole park and Ty loves doing that, sleeping up there. You can get the sunshine on them and kind of, you know, take a little bath in the sun. I love it so much. And not only that, but watching Ty come down from up there, yes. let's be clear. There's no ladder. There's no. No, these are snow leopards who are made to live on mountains, and yep. he comes down like a fast little ball. I don't even know yep. how to describe it, but yep. um, if you've seen it here or if you haven't, come to the Akron Zoo and check it out because um, watching a snow leopard run down a mountain mm-hmm. is special. <laughs> yeah, every time I see it, because there's times if he's up top and we need to bring him inside to his bedroom, I'll go around and kind of get his attention, and he sees me. And he just, the way he jumps like every time, I love watching it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, cool. So let's, let's take it back to the cats we're supposed to be talking yes. about. Sorry, I'm, I'm easily distracted by hey, pretty fine. things. Um, but yeah, so, so tell me about the tigers and the new exhibit. We have a male and a female, Sumatran tiger. Our male is Echo. It's not E-C-H-O, kind of, but it's E-K-O. And so Sumatran tigers are front, you know, indigenous to an island of Sumatra, which is south of Indonesia, and his translation actually means first child. And an interesting story about Echo is we had Kami, who was Echo's father here at Akron, several years ago. And then Kami went to Oklahoma City on an SSP program and bred, and we got Echo out of that. So it's kind of cool that Echo... Kami son is here with us while we're opening Asia. Oh, that makes me so happy. That's yeah. such a sweet story. That's really cool. Yeah, and it's funny because Kami was, you know, kind of a grouchy boy, and Echo's very similar, so it's like like father, like son. <laughs> so we have Echo, and then we have Dibaru. Uh, she came to us from San Diego, actually. She's actually a smaller cat. She's only about 160 pounds. Okay. Echo's about 260, so he outweighs her by 100 pounds. But she's actually two years older than him. And she, her, actually, her name means hunted, so that translates to hunted. And obviously Sumatran tigers are, you know, endangered. There's only about 400 left in the wild. So they get hunted, they get poached, you know, and then just their habitat loss also affects that. All right, that makes sense. And um, male and female, is this a breeding pair? They are a breeding pair. They're, we got an SSP recommendation to breed them. We're probably, you know, we're working right now on introducing them to each other. They've never met before. They came from different institutions, zoological parks. So we're kind of taking it slow right now, letting them get used to each other. And then... Well, talk me through the process. How do you get two tigers, especially with a hundred pound weight disparity, to to be friends? It was actually nice because when one institution sends an any animal to another one, they give you an animal data transfer form. And that kind of shows me everything I need to know. So for Dibaru, they said she loves seeing other male tigers. So I was like, okay, that's good. And then him, so what we did was a very slow process because they're kind of across, their bedrooms are across from each other. So they were able to see each other for months. Then we did a thing where we put them beside each other, but you had a solid door between them. So they could smell each other, but couldn't see each other. They were do- that was doing really well, so we were able to take this plexi off that door to where it was just, they were able to see each other then. And I've been doing that for like a month now. I was doing it daily for a little bit, but now I'm doing like once a week. But it is so funny because Echo is so grouchy and grumpy to us keepers. But then when he sees her, they'll do this chuff noise, 
which to a tiger is kind of like a, them saying hello to each other. So he will like be all mean and hissy dust, but then he sees her, he chuffs away at her. Like it's kind of adorable. Like, oh, you, <laughs> you know, you turn into some little cutie pie, you know, when you see your girlfriend. So eventually, yeah. So we're just trying to warm things up to the actual physical introductions, probably in the fall to see if we can do anything. Well, that's really exciting. Um, so I'm curious when you heard that wild Asia was going to be a thing here, mm-hmm. um, was it something where you were like, I need to be a part of that or like, how did you get involved with wild Asia? I got involved with wild Asia because before the tigers left, I was their primary keeper and then I kind of switched gears, you know, I had to do something else. So I went and I was, I was able to get primary keeper of snow leopard jaguar and then it, we found out, okay, Wild Asia is opening. We're going to get Tigers back. So it kind of worked out real nice that I was able to kind of get to work with him again. Which And Tigers are my favorite animal, so that helped out a ton. That's awesome. I I think the hardest thing in my mind as a, you know, wanting to get into zookeeping or whatever mm-hmm. would just be knowing that you don't always get to work with your favorite species. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You don't, but I think in general for uh, all of us keepers, you know, I don't work the same animals every day. I work my primary animals three to four times a week, but we all love all animals. You know what I mean? I just, I I enjoy them all. We all have our favorites, but you know, we all, everyone here loves all the animals. Everyone, this whole entire zoological park loves all these animals. So that's awesome. And that's one of the things I've noticed about Akron in mm. general. Um, the people here seem really, connected to the zoo um and to each other i i can't tell you how many zoos i go to when i'm hanging out in the office and people just walk by each other with their heads down and here everyone was chatting with everyone um talk to me a little bit about uh how you feel as like a team here yeah we're i consider us kind of like a really tight-knit family uh everyone knows everyone you know i can come upstairs to these offices and talk to people or when i'm walking by everyone says hi it's just really nice, you know, it's a nice place, and quite frankly, I, I met my wife here, so. Nice. Yeah. Right. Were you chuffing? I did chuff at her. <laughs> I chuffed at her, and she didn't know what I was doing, and then I had to, <laughs> yeah. So what, does, what, what is your wife a keeper of? She actually is a supervisor in the cafe, so okay. yeah, different departments. No, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. I mean, we all need a soft pretzel keeper in our life. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so then, I guess, talking about teams for a minute, mm-hmm. tell me what it's like putting together or um, like coming together as a team for this new area. And, and what has it been like for you guys to solidify as a team? It's been one of those instances where sometimes, you know, chaos kind of brings you closer. So we're all, <laughs> we're all trying to get this ready. You know, we had red, the Red Pandas and... Gibbons and this tiger building and it, we all kind of pitched in because there's a lot of work that needs to get done in order for us to get our animals ready to be in these buildings so you know we just did laundry lists and kind of like to-do lists and it was just so nice to see how everyone pitched in and like hey I don't need to I don't have time for this but I'm going to make time to help out or you know you just help out and it was just a really cool thing to see how the, all the keepers and teams just came out came together and helped get all this ready. Cause ultimately we got to do this. We got to do this right for the animals. So hundred percent. And these are all new buildings, right? 
Brand new buildings. Oh, yep. So tell me about your buildings. My building, you know, the Tiger building is really nice. The Tiger's brand new building. I actually have a refrigerator in there, so the Tiger's diets, I can bring over and let them thaw in the building. I don't have to walk like, you know, I don't know, 300 feet with a bucket and carry it around. I'd uh-huh. write in my, I have a sink, I have a computer, which I never had in my old, you know, in their old ha- buildings. So all that stuff's really nice to have. And they, they have larger bedrooms, um, you know, and it's going to be really nice too because we'll be able to have each tiger echo and Dibiru out at the exact same time. Cause we have two habitats. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, um, how much, uh, input did, did like keepers and stuff get to have in these buildings? We, we had a decent amount of input. It was more nice cause, uh, as the buildings were coming along, they would kind of ask us to go in and get our opinions, or do you see anything that looks weird, or do you see anything that mechanically isn't going to be right? So that was nice, because as things were coming along, they would ask us opinions, and then if we thought, oh, that doesn't look like that'll work well, they would adjust it for us. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That, was, that is one of my favorite things about Akron, too, is the amount that they trust our opinions, honestly. You know, I get, I, I gotta say, the first time I was here, I just got good vibes about this zoo, and every time I've been back, um... Yeah, I, I I love it. You know, sometimes uh, sometimes I think the human element gets lost at a zoo, and I don't think mm-hmm. that Akron allows that to happen, which I think is really really cool. Um, so, what do you think the um, the guest experience is going to be like when these doors fly open and and Wild Asia is is open to the public? I think it's they're gonna love it. You know, it, if I'm going from building to building and I'm going on because the pathways are completed. So if I'm going from Tiger to Panda Building and I'm on the pathway, just I look around. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. You know, you do feel like you're immersed, immersed in Asia. So yeah, and then you know, there I will add that we're gonna have a Tiger training wall. So there's kind of like mezzanine seating, like little bleacher seating, to where a keeper will be doing a Tiger. You can have Echo or Debaru right there, and you're gonna be sitting on like bleacher type seating and be able to watch us do all their training that we show for all their, you know, health and all that welfare. That is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. I will be back once once that is happening for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so real quick. Yes. What is your favorite animal in the zoo, not counting the tigers? I'm going to have to go with Ty. Ty Longarm, male snow leopard. And for me, it's because he's, I call him over-reliable, because <laughs> if I need him to go from his habitat to his bedroom, or I, have to, I can have him do three different things in a single shift, and he will do them for me. I love Shanti, and everyone loves Shanti, but Shanti likes to play games with us where she's like, eh, I'll do, what, I'll do that when I feel like it. And, you know, <laughs> it just kind of, uh, she keeps you on your toes, that's for sure. But Ty's just so reliable, and I just love his personality, so... Probably him. Very cool. That that works. Um, and then, are there any uh, conservation organizations that you'd like to give a shout out to, or anything like that? So the one conservation campaign that I would like to shout out is the Tiger Conservation Campaign, and they do a Global Tiger Day every single year, and that helps support you know the teams to combat the trafficking of the tigers and everything else that happens. So. I love that, you know, you can get the funds and they can send them directly to them and that'll help get equipment and whatever they would need to help with those their efforts. 
All right. Very cool. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to give a shout out to? I will do the Snow Leopard Trust. Of course you will. Yeah. <laughs> For Shanti and Ty and all those other Snow Leopards. So we are a big advocate of the Snow Leopard Trust, and we really help support them and fund them in any way that we can. We've been doing them for years, actually. Very cool. Yeah, I have a Snow Leopard Trust hat that looks really stupid on my head because I don't look good in hats, but I wear it a lot because I like it. So excellent organization, horrible headwear if you have a weirdly shaped head like I do. But uh, yeah, that's all right. Cool. And so now it is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, oh, no. It's time for the Ron Safari Poop Story. Hit me. Way back in the day, we had a female jaguar, and we had to do fecal samples on them. So you'd collect them every day out of their bedroom, and then you'd put them in Ziploc bags. And it'd be one of those, okay, get them to the hospital for, for our vet techs to kind of run them as you can. Well, I collected this fecal sample, and I was like, all right, I'll get this later. So I threw it in my pocket of my shorts. Well... The next morning, I'm sitting there at the morning meeting. I'm like, wow, I, something smells really bad right now. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like feeling my pockets, and I feel something like smushy in my right pocket. <laughs> and I pull out this bag of like Jaguar poop that was just sitting in my pocket for 24 hours from the day before. Oh, no. So that's, that's the one big poop story I have. That's amazing. Yeah, um, you know, not to tell anyone how to do your job, but uh, keep her friends. Let's... Yeah. Let's not put poop in our pockets yeah. if we can help it. If we can help it, I yeah, know. Yeah, or at least try to get it to its destination quickly. <laughs> fair, fair. All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. No, no problem. Thank you, and I look forward to everyone seeing Wild Asians. <laughs> All right, so tell me who you are and what you do here at Akron. My name is Brenna. I am the primary gibbon and tamarin keeper here at the Akron Zoo. Um, and I work in the Asia areas, um, primarily, but we're, I'm on the primate hoofstock team. So I also travel around to the other primates we have, which are the lemurs, um, pygmy slow loris, and then all of our hoofstock as well. Okay, cool. And, um, we're obviously here celebrating the, uh, the soon to open wild Asia. Um, and we will get to that, but let's start off by talking about a different primate, which is you. I make that joke every time I talk to a primate keeper. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but anyway, um, so tell me about like why you got into animal care. Um, I'm sure this is going to be a very cliche story, and a lot of us probably have very similar stories, but it's just something I've always been obsessed with since I was little. Um, I don't know if everybody had like the bookmobile in their neighborhood. It was like, it's just a library on wheels. Oh no, but I want one. Yeah, I know. I, I was, it's fine. I was actually thinking about this last night cause I have a daughter now and I was like, we don't live in a neighborhood. Um, and I was like, oh, I wish we had a neighborhood primarily so that she could get a bookmobile. Cause that was like my, you know, my heaven when I was little. Um, and I would just get every single animal book I could find anything, animal planet, anything, I, every animal show I could watch on TV. Um, my dad was always very supportive. He's also really into animals, though he's not in the profession. But um, so he was always very supportive of it. And kind of my, both my parents really, more than anything, they encouraged curiosity um, and kind of the scientific way of thinking. So that plus my like kind of innate love of animals and keeping pets when I was younger of all varieties um, 
I kind of went through different phases of what I thought my career was going to be. You know, when I was maybe six, I was like, oh, marine biologist for sure. I'm not going to be above water much. Like that's what I, I just want to be in the ocean at all times. Um, but, you know, I live in Ohio, so that's not <laughs> really a solid option <laughs> for my location right now. Um, I definitely could move, but um, – and then I went into like a, you know, maybe a vet and, uh, a vet and um, I – Kind of got out of that because I, I really liked the getting to see animals when they're at their best and not only when maybe something is wrong or often when something is wrong or they need help or something. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into animal keeping as my my chosen animal career path. Cool. And then uh, where did you go to school and what did you study? I went to Miami University, Miami of Ohio. So, right, right. Yes. The Red Hawks, not the Hurricanes. Um, otherwise, the marine biology would have been very easy. Yes. Uh, yes. So still landlocked. Um, and I studied, I have a BS in zoology and a BA in psychology. My minor was in uh, behavioral neuroscience. Okay, very cool. And you find that that applies to dealing with uh, animals? Definitely. Yeah. I think, and I think obviously my degree in zoology is directly applicable. Um, psychology, I find just useful pretty much in everyday life, no matter what your career path is. And even for anything related to animals, you're, you have to interact with humans. It just is, it is what it is, even though some people in our profession would prefer it to be otherwise. Um, the best way even for conservation efforts to be effective is to focus on the people. People make the impact for the animals. Um, for better or worse. So if, if people are often the problems fate that conservation efforts face, we're also the solution. So the psychology comes in a lot of just understanding people's motivations, um, you know, why they do the things they do, which is always very helpful. So really dealing with your coworkers. I mean, so I think both of my degrees come in very, very handy with with what I do on a day-to-day basis. That's awesome. You're actually the first person I've talked to who went to uh, the Miami University in Ohio here mm-hmm. that did it for undergrad. I know so oh. many people that do Project Dragonfly yes. as grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you said that, I kind of was starting to be like, oh, yeah, Project Dragonfly. And then you shut me right up. So. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, I considered doing Project Dragonfly. I st- still on my like possibilities list. Um, now... I got introduced to it when it was very young um, and I had looked into it and kind of hemmed and hawed about it. I really wanted to get my master's in something that I could see doing for the rest of my life. I don't know that I'm going to be a keeper for the rest. I just physically, mentally, emotionally, it takes a large toll on you. I think any keeper could tell you that. Um, Eventually your body isn't going to keep up with the keeping tasks that you have to do. Um, And then, you know, just compassion, exhaustion, empathy wise, you there everyone has their limit and you will you know if you if you aren't able to change your career path or kind of grow in your career early enough eventually you'll burn out i think it's so hard to do this career till you retire I, there are definitely people who do that but it's just, i think it's 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 commendable it's just so difficult to do um so i've definitely thought about getting into taking kind of more of the psychological look at it and getting into more, um, conservation through that kind of pathway. So yeah, I have, um, I have, I know so many people, a few of which I work with here that did Project Dragonfly and got their master's through that program. Um, so maybe that, but 
probably something else. <laughs> gotcha. That's cool. That's cool. Um, and you said you have a daughter, right? I do. How old is your daughter? She's 17 months. Oh, wow. Okay. So mm-hmm. she's like young. She's little, yeah. Very cool. All right. <laughs> so is she going to be a, a zoo baby and, and walk around here and, and know all the animals and everything? I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, we have a little, my husband and I have a little hobby farm at home. So she's around, she's obsessed with our chickens. She's around animals a lot. Um, we also keep and and make uh, terrariums and vivariums, paludariums at home. So we have poison dart frogs at home. We have a bunch of um, aquariums. We have fish. And so she loves all of that right now. But obviously it's just more of like um, you know, movement and colors and shapes and like, oh, that's cool. She knows the word chicken now, but she doesn't want to touch one yet. She just wants to look at them. So <laughs> we'll that's see. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. Cool. We'll Very see. cool. She loves the dogs, but yeah, I mean, I would hope so, but you know, as any so parent. Do you just come to the zoo to get away from all the animals at home? Like <laughs> since there are less species here, I think. Uh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I often pass the, uh, the household tasks on to my husband. Cause I'm like, I did this all day. I, if I have to feed more birds or frogs or anything, like you're going to, you know, so he takes on a lot of those tasks since that's what I do all day. That's hilarious. Very cool. So let's talk about wild Asia. Yeah. 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 So, um, you're dealing with gibbons. Yes. Tell me about gibbons. Um, well, they're cool. All right, good. Interview (laughs) over. Thank you. Um, no, they're really fun. They're super fun. They're, they're definitely the most intelligent, um, animals I've ever worked with. Uh, so my primate knowledge, once again, is, is more of, um, persimmons and smaller species, new world primates. And, um, so they're the first, there are species of lesser ape. So, or they're the only kind of lesser ape. Um, everyone knows the great apes. Everyone knows chimpanzees, orangs, gorillas, humans, but um, they are lesser apes, so they have more in common with them than not, than with monkeys. Um, and they're just, they're super intelligent, so they keep me on my toes every day, but they're so personable. They're so fun and um, curious and interested in everything that anyone's doing. So right now they are in their indoor exhibit while we still get their outdoor exhibit uh ready. And, um, so they have nothing but windows basically, and they can just look at all the people going around and, um, they can see the red pandas. So the first day that the red pandas were out in their habitat, that was so fun for them. They were just (laughs) sitting there watching them like, what is that thing? Uh, it was really cute. Because even gibbons know that red pandas are the best animals. (laughs) Um, maybe, or maybe they just thought it was like a cat that could be their pet or something. Fair, fair. Yeah. They were probably just like, oh, I could make that my pet, you know? Because as the hierarchy of the animals, you know what I mean? They're just so intelligent. So, um... (laughs) So yeah, they're really, really fun. Um, they they kind of amaze me. They're known for their singing abilities and their parkour abilities. So they're always doing some really cool brachiation and some flips and doing a lot of things that as a human you look at and you're like, how are your arms not just <laughs> disconnecting at their joints right now? Or, you know, or, or um, yeah, they make a lot of really cool vo- vocalizations. Um, every morning, a pair of gibbons, which is what we have, a male and female, will sing a duet to kind of solidify their relationship. And it, it's a territory call also. So it kind of lets all the gibbons in the surrounding area know that that's their home and they're together. And um, we have not heard ours sing yet. So we are hoping 
once they get into their outdoor habitat that that's that might be the kickoff of when they can be out there early because usually it's first thing like early early in the morning when the sun rises so we're hoping that that's that'll be the kickoff for them to start singing their duets that sounds really cool what are what are their names uh parker and milo so parker is the female milo's the male parker is um they are sexually dimorphic so I'm sure your listeners know what that means, but just yes. in case, uh, <laughs> means the male and the female of the species look different and they're very easily identifiable. So the male is black and he's got white cheek pads. The female is a uh, blonde, buff, kind of beige color, and she's got a black crown on her head. Um, so yeah, they're very distinguishable. Um, Parker is the more cautious of the two, I would say. She's definitely more of like a think before she leaps kind of kind of gibbon um she is she's super thoughtful though but she's also very affectionate um he is more of the curious like leaps before he looks sometimes misses <laughs> you know he just goes for it he's super curious also very personable he's just so funny um they both are but yeah she's definitely more of like the i think i relate to her more is why you know milo to me i'm just like you're going to you need to calm down <laughs> You're going to end up like, you know, just like hitting a wall full force or something. And then he won't. He'll hit it with his feet, do a flip, you know. <laughs> um, but she just, she's, she's more thoughtful, cautious, definitely right, with, especially with new people, right, when she kind of gets to meet you. So, but then she's she's super warm and they're both very loving. So, and they love each other. So, that's awesome. That's adorable. Yeah. Um, are they uh, SSP breeding pair? They are. Okay. Yes. Yep. Um, so hoping for some baby givens. Yes. Yep. Uh, they are free to breed right now. Uh, they mate all the time. So we are hoping for some babies here very soon. What are baby gibbons called? Gibbonettes? Gibbon? Just infants. Giblets? Giblets. I'm going with giblets. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did not expect this kind of stupidity on a podcast, did you? No, I mean, I did. Oh, I just okay. didn't. No. <laughs> I just. Giblets makes you think of think of giblets, and I don't, oh. you know, what I mean? okay, when yeah, you're like fair. pulling it out of a turkey. Yeah, fair. No, it's kind of well, gross. I mean, if you have to assist with the birthing, though, that's oh, anyway. Oh. <laughs> I would really hope not. That yeah. might be not especially great for me if I have to help her. It's definitely not good for her. <laughs> I'm not trained for such a thing. Fair, fair, fair. But fair. yeah, we're just hoping you know everything goes smoothly. She's a good mom on her own, and no interventions are needed. Obviously, all those good things, just like for a human, just the same things you would hope for a smooth labor and delivery and all that kind of stuff. So we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Right now, we're just hoping that she can get pregnant, and we'll take it from there. Very cool. Yeah. What kind of um, adaptations do you have to have in the building to uh, to be ready for breeding and and uh, all right, I won't say giblets uh, and and baby <laughs> baby gibbons. Babies really were just um, more. The good thing is is that we we didn't have to retrofit this building or this space for this species. We built it for their specifications and their needs. So we really got to kind of hand pick what we need, the type of um, reinforcements needed, the the materials, the anything, um, the diameter of the, you know, there's everything we kind of got to pick for this purpose, knowing that we were getting a breeding pair, hopefully with babies. So um, 
really we, we kind of just want to be careful of when we put in our perching and all the branches and roping that they swing from and stuff that there, we don't create any pinch points that little tiny fingers and arms can get into. Um, nothing that they can easily grab through or underneath because they can they have enough space where they can kind of swipe things off the floor. So nothing that's going to be dangerous, nothing that they can eat or um, just the normal considerations pretty much for any animal in our care. But really for babies, it was nice that we got to choose it right out of the gate, that we got to specify, okay, well, you know, an adult gibbon arm might not fit through this hole, but a teeny gibbon arm will, and we need to prepare for the teeny ones. So, um, yeah, so def- definitely different things like that. And then making sure that we have enough things close to the ground that in case one were to, you know, mom let go and, and a baby fell or something, that it would be able to climb back up or just things like that, that making sure we have enough um, lower perching, diameter of perching, uh, yeah, just a, a variety of things. But like I said, it was super easy for us because we got to build that building for them. Right, right. Instead of retrofitting a building that was built, you know, initially with the intention of housing bears and now you're trying to put hoofstock in it or something crazy. Like that would be a much bigger challenge than us building it from the ground up. That is really cool and really advantageous. Um it's- and I love that you guys got to have some input into it as well. That's just, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, this is definitely the first, since I've been here, I've been, this is the third um, project I've been a part of. Of uh, The first was Curious Creatures, um, which was obviously just kind of a, a smaller gallery, like, change. Um, and then we built Pride of Africa. So that was the first major project that I was a part of. And then um, Wild Asia. So... Um, this one, I was more involved in being the primary gibbon keeper. The Africa, I was just involved in as another host keeper for the goats and the gazelles. So this one was really nice. Um, my manager, Shane Good, let me actually have, uh, a decent, op- uh, opinion and, and some sway and pull. And there were lots of things where he was kind of just like, oh, well, you know, you're the one that's going to be in the building every single day. So what do you want? What do you, which is a lot doesn't you you don't get handed those opportunities as a keeper very often. So um, I give all the credit for to him for that. He included me more than he needed to. So that was awesome. That is really cool. Yeah. Very nice. Um, and so you said you also take care of the lemurs here, and I love the little lemur room here. It is <laughs> so cool. Um, tell me about your lemurs a little bit. So lemurs, I'm not. I'm the also the primary tamarind keeper, but I do take care of the lemurs as another primate keeper. So um, our lemurs, we have two ringtail lemurs, boys, Gidro and Nathan. We have one um, bebel is what we call them, but they're the blue-eyed black right, right. Uh, subspecies. Uh, Murphy, also a male. Murphy is adorable, by the way. He sure is. Um, and and so curious and playful uh, every time. And I insane. See him yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we have four red rough lemurs um, who are sisters. So we have, and that is Gwen, Avatar, Ikoto, and Zeke. Ah, the names here are so great. I love it. <laughs> um, very cool. So then, uh, they're all kind of visible in one little room uh for the most part mm-hmm. and um 
uh, I shouldn't say little room because that sounds bad on the podcast, in a very large room where yeah, everybody has plenty not a of closet. space. And, no, and, and plenty of room <laughs> to, to fly around and be yeah. all lemurry. Yes. Um, they have plenty of back of house spaces as well. So right, plenty right. of other bedrooms and holdings and whatever you want to. But it's such a unique way to exhibit the species where you can really get intimately close to them. And I just I just wanted to point that out to my listeners because it's a really cool spot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the lemurs, I like to always say um, my tamarins are, like, more similar to cats in their behavior in the more of, like, hmm, I'll come near you, but when it's convenient right. for me. Um, lemurs are puppies, so... <laughs> They are in your face whether you want them to be or not, and they'll just follow you around. And Murphy has zero boundaries, zero, um, to the point where we're like, you you cannot, you need to not touch me. You know, like, right, right. <laughs> this isn't, you're not allowed to, like, be on me. Um, so he has zero boundaries, but they're all, a lot of them are trained um, for go-look behaviors, which is, like, they'll go right up to the windows, put their hands on, um, and get rewarded for that behavior, which is just a sweet thing to do when, especially when there's like little kids outside of the windows or something and they just put their hands up to the glass to a lemur hand. And it's a really fun interactive behavior that I think impacts some people when they can get that close. Like you said, it's a very, you're allowed to be, you know, this far away from one, just a a pane of glass. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then uh, I had meant to ask this earlier and forgotten. You reminded me. So thank you. Um, Are gibbons free or protected contact? They are protected. Okay. Cool, yes. Cool, cool. Yeah. I know a lot of places do um, free contact with them. I believe that's more in kind of a um, – some places have like islands, you know, and stuff yeah, where yeah, – yeah. yeah. So I think that that creates a physical barrier already instead of having it through, you know, a, a mesh mm-hmm. um, or anything. So ours are just through the mesh because we don't have an island situation. So they are – they're protected contact. Um, but I will say – I've never worked with gibbons before, before this pair. From what I know of other gibbons that I have seen and talked to other keepers that work with them, they have potential to be pretty crazy. Um, Ours are so gentle, so, so gentle. So they take rewards and treats right out of your hands very, very gently. They'll kind of like lick your fingers to clean it up afterwards. And um, they really enjoy the human interaction and being – you know, some of our behaviors that we train with them, we touch them, um, and neither. They both love it. They don't mind it at all, which some animals might or right, some yeah. personalities of those animals yeah. might. And our two just, they're so, so gentle. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, and so then uh, do you have any conservation organizations you'd like to give a shout-out to? Sure. So being that I'm also the Tamarin keeper i need to shout out our cans for corridors program um which is a program one of the other keepers uh lauren starkey she brought to i'm sorry lauren mckenna she just got married and i'm not used to her new name um she brought to the zoo where basically all you have to do is donate your cans to us your aluminum cans and uh we go get the we turn them in get the money from them all of that money from those cans donated goes to cans for corridors which builds corridors of the Amazon rainforest back um, for not only tamarins, but for jaguars and all other Amazonian species whose habitats are fragmented and they really need to be able to obviously cross their territories to get to their family members, to get to the other um, food sources, whatever it might be. 
So Cancer Corridors is an amazing one. It's also so easy. Everyone has aluminum cans. Um, you just drop them off to us and then you don't have to do anything else, but know that your money is going towards built, rebuilding the Amazon rainforest. So that one's pretty awesome. Um, and then anything I would say um, with like sustainably sourced palm oil products, which I'm sure is another one you guys have probably talked about yes, here. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Long So that one's pretty, a lot of people who are interested in animals and interested in conservation already know all about that. So I don't need to, to waste anybody's time, but, um, just getting sustainably sourced palm oil products obviously helps the other side of the world rainforest, um, and allows the gibbon habitats and, um, orang habitats and everything else. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think those, those would be probably my two conservation Shout outs. Great. And keep in mind, uh, anyone listening to this, that you can get a free app on the, the app store. I at least know Apple has it. I don't know if, if Android does. Uh, from Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, that, that will help you know whether products are sustainably sourced uh, with their palm oil or not. Yes. So is a good app to have and, and take some time to, to check that out. Yes. I know they release um, like flyers and posters around every holiday that has anything to do with candy also. So Valentine's Day, Halloween, all that uh, for which products are sustainably sourced um, so that you don't have to go buy a bunch of candy for your kids that also is ruining rainforests. Yep. That's usually a pretty good idea. Love it. Yeah, very cool. And it is time for the Rasafari poop story. Poop story. Hit me. Oh, boy. All right. So in the interest of one, I'll give you two. Amazing. You can decide. I'll probably put them both. Um, <laughs> also totally fine. <laughs> So one was going to be with the red rough lemurs, anyone who works with lemurs, primates in general, but lemurs, especially since they're, they're more frugivores, they eat a lot more fruit, which means a lot of fiber. You know what that poop probably looks like, right? So there have been multiple times where I've gotten pooped on and it does not roll off. You know, <laughs> like some animals, if they poop on you, at least even, even the other lemurs, when they poop on you, it rolls off. It's fine. Um, that doesn't, it splatters. So this was uh, two days, no, last week, last week, one of them, I walked in, I'm going to say it was my fault because they do have a poop spot that happens to be right over where we walk into their one habitat. So I walked in, you know, not really carrying some food, not really like looking above my head and just got like pooped right on my shoulder. Um, it have, I was also trying to be nice and bringing them some extra treats to do an additional training session because there was a large crowd of people out. And I was like, oh, that'll be nice to go, go you know, to show people some <laughs> right. training and go do it, like the go look behaviors and stuff. Um, and then, I, you know, they don't care. So I just got pooped on. <laughs> the one, that's like pretty typical though. Every keeper's gotten pooped on. Sure, sure. Um, the grosser one, I used to take care of our Komodo dragons here. And Draco, our female Komodo dragon, um, lays eggs every now and then. She ate one of her eggs. It came out the other end still pretty formed, like it wasn't fully broken down. <laughs> okay. Um, in her dig, and she was out because when she has eggs, she's very lazy and she does not want to come inside, which is totally fine. She can stay out if she wants. So she was out for overnight. She had a, a, apparently eaten an egg pooped it out into her dig pit and I didn't find it till the next morning because she was out overnight. Um, and it was, if you can, I mean, half digested, putrid, you know, just not, um, great. 
I wasn't ex- wasn't looking where I was walking, and I slipped in it oh. in her dig pit, and I put my foot down and just slid. And oh. then, like, ha- so half – I caught myself, but, like, half my leg went down. <laughs> so it was, like, not only a broken out, like, reptile egg, it was half digested, putrid, and their exhibit is so warm because, obviously, they love it hot. They're giant <laughs> lizards. So it was just cooking in there, too. So it was – <laughs> that was that's the only time so far in my career that I have been like, oh, don't vomit, don't vomit, like don't puke. It was the worst. There are some bad smell. Like I'm sure you probably heard vulture puke. Is oh yeah, yep. Horrible smelling. This was the worst smelling thing I've ever encountered in my life. So that's probably the worst one. That's a good one. That's yeah, a real it's good the one. only time I've almost vomited. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) All right. So tell me who you are and what you do here at the Akron Zoo. Hi, everyone. My name is Lisa. I am the principal red panda keeper here, along (laughs) with a few other animals, including uh, North American river otters and capybara. No one cares about the other animals. No, no, (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. Well, that's amazing. And I'm so excited to be talking to you. And even though we've been pretending that this is all about wild Asia and there are other (laughs) animals, everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I am now geeking out fully. So welcome. Um, Let's start off talking about you, though. And so tell me why you got into keeping. Um, my interest kind of started a little bit early. Um, and when I was a teenager, I started volunteering at another zoo. I'm originally from Wheeling, West Virginia, and started volunteering with Ogilby Good Zoo down there. Yes, if you have ever seen the logo for my podcast, <laughs> that is me meeting Junji ah, at Ogilby. I was actually just home last week and saw him. Nice. He is such a good boy. Yes. Um, yes. But anyway, sorry, I told you this is going to be a total geek out yes. interview. Um, but yeah, yeah, so go ahead. Tell me more so, about your time. Yeah, I was originally from Wheeling. Uh, started volunteering at Ogilvy when I was a teenager. A few years into that, got a part-time keeping job there. Uh, so I was able to get a lot of good experience uh, with animals there. And I was able to keep that job through the end of college, which was great experience for me. Great um um, skill building in that sense. Uh, and then after college, I was able to get a full-time position here at Akron Zoo. So I've been here for about 14 years now. This is insane. I have <laughs> talked to three keepers today and you have all been here for like ever. That's amazing and speaks so highly to how amazing this institution mm-hmm. is. That's so cool. Um, when you were at the Good Zoo, uh, yes. was Dr. Joe in charge? Uh, he was curator at okay, the time. Cool, cool, cool. So yes, uh, the, there's been some changes. Obviously, it's been a while since I was on staff there, but uh, yes, Joe uh, uh, was curator during the time I was there. Very cool. Yeah, he uh, he was my interview there and uh, took me through the zoo, and he's just uh, what a cool guy. Yes, what a very cool human. Um, awesome. So what did you, what, what species were you taking care of when you were at the Good Zoo? Um, a little bit of everything, actually. I was initially hired. I was pretty young when I was initially hired. So it was initially just um, pony rides and the children's zoo area, which at the time did include red pandas. Um, uh, at that time, they were in a different habitat that has now been remodeled for snow leopards there. Um, but I was initially trained there. And then as I moved up and other sections were rearranged. I was also trained in the main building area, which included a lot of smaller habitats with amphibians, reptiles, fish. Um, with, there's a rainforest area with some tamarins and sloth, uh, some birds mixed in too. And then uh, the major outside area of the zoo, I was also trained to close. So I wasn't 
necessarily one of their primary keepers, but I was trained to generally work with those animals and be able to close down those areas at the end of the day. Wow. So you really hit it all. Yeah. I got a little bit of everything, which actually really helped me, um, towards the end of my schooling when I was looking around at other positions. Um, Ogilvy didn't have any full-time positions at the time. Um, so I was looking around and that variety of experience is what really helped me get some interviews and eventually get hired here. Awesome. Uh, and so when you started here, what were you keeping? Uh, initially I was hired into the Tiger Valley section, which physically doesn't exist anymore (laughs) at the moment. Um, so yeah, we've, uh, pretty much all of the areas that I was originally hired into and worked have now since been remodeled over, um, even just the past 10 years or so. Um, so we, uh, in the recent couple of years, we've also gone through a keeper team restructure. So I'm now on a carnivore and small mammal team, but, uh, previously Tiger Valley included the penguins and then some of our big cats and bears and some of our farmland animals with our sheep and goats, um, also red pandas and otters, um, some birds, uh, some owls and other smaller birds as well. So we had a good variety of everything too. That's awesome. And yeah, that's one of the interesting things here. So red pandas, um, when I first came to the Akron Zoo, it was because I had seen some posts about the red pandas here. Mm-hmm. And then I came and, and there weren't red pandas anymore. Um, it was, I think right after they had left, I oh. just missed them, but I was told that wild Asia was going to open mm-hmm. and that was, you know, a couple years ago now yeah. and now it's opening Here. and I'm yes. so excited, um, to finally get my Akron red panda fix. Um, <laughs> so, uh, tell me what it was like for you when, when you heard all of this was happening and like the pandas were going to leave, but then you were going to get a new awesome space for them. Just tell me what that yeah. was like for you. So it was an interesting experience for me. Um, our, our last panda moved out in uh, November of 2018. Red pandas are part of the SSP program within zoos. So the SSP committee knew that we were looking at building these areas and knew we needed placement. So we were able to move our last one out to uh, Cape May, New Jersey. November of 2018, and then... Uh, Who was that? That was Baru. Okay, okay. Um, so he left in November, um, and then they started tearing down our old areas uh, only within a month or two after that. Um, so we had to do a lot of demo because the hillside that those areas sat on, it, there's a lot of rock underneath that hillside. So not only did they need to demo the old buildings, the old areas... Um, but they needed to really dig into that rock to be able to start building our new areas. Uh, so we knew that we were going to have all these new buildings, new habitats built, which is very exciting. Um, the Tiger Valley section at the time was the oldest area of the zoo and, uh, zoo habitats tend to have about a 20 year lifespan. So our areas were definitely in need of complete renovation. Um, just like your house, um, you know, pipes get leaky, Things get cracked, things break. So um, we we were kind of dealing with all that in our old areas. And um, so we were all very happy to be having some new areas coming. For me personally, it meant that we were not going to have red pandas actually on grounds for about two years. The initial plan was for Wild Asia to open in 2020. And that was a little bit rough on me. <laughs> um, I What I've been joking with my friends and family for the past two years is that I went into panda withdrawal. <laughs> <laughs> I believe uh, it. 
I still had other animals here uh, under my care that uh, I was taking care of on a daily basis and still required my attention. And it did, uh, not having pandas here did allow me to give certain other animals, especially the otters, a little bit more one-on-one attention. Um, So it allowed me to complete some other projects here. But, uh, yeah, it definitely was personally a little bit hard for me. Um, Unfortunately, with the pandemic, we were not able to open Wild Asia last year. Uh, but we were able to at least bring the pandas onto grounds um, end of September, early October last year. So they have been here um, for almost six months now. Absolutely, they have. And you guys have done a really nice job Thank making you. them uh, digitally <laughs> present you. for everyone. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I love the um, all the little mini webisodes mm-hmm. and, and everything. But for those who haven't seen them, um, and you know, shame on you if you haven't. Uh, let's let's talk about your pandas. Tell me about your girls. So we have three sisters, Lulu, Penny, and Coco. Um, at the moment, they're just over about a year and a half old. Uh, they came to us from Kansas City Zoo. Um, and uh, when they were born there, Kansas City Zoo actually did a fundraiser with local elementary schools uh, where money was raised for Red Panda Network, and uh, the three top schools each got to name a panda. So that's how they came by their names. Um, We do actually have a link to that article posted with some of the Panda Palace episodes about that. Uh, And uh, so that was kind of a fun way to find out how they got their names and really realize that even elementary school kids are contributing to conservation. Um, But uh, they're young, so they're still somewhat playful. They are at an age now where they are reaching sexual maturity. So They are starting to slow down a bit, um, especially with the warmer weather coming in. We're seeing them start to settle down a little bit more. They are cold weather animals, so they are more active in the wintertime. Um, But uh, uh, they did uh, stay in a hospital area for a little while as we completed the construction work on their habitat and on the new building. And then we were able to move them into the new building about the end of January. It took just slightly longer to get the outside habitat ready. Um, But we've been able to have them out there for a few months now. And we've been gradually adding more and more perching and different structures for them to play on and lay in and uh, different features to it. So um, they are enjoying that right now. Uh, One of the really cool features is that we actually have an outdoor off habitat space as well. Um, it, nice. yes, um, it is not fully completed yet. Um, the, the structure is there, but we still have to build, um, a lot of the perching and tables and things that will be going in there for them. But, uh, the, that area will be used in case we do need to separate anybody, maybe for a medical issue or eventually down the road if we're breeding and we need to separate a male from a female at some point during the season. Um, and we're hoping eventually um, to be able to work up to do some different public type encounters back there. Uh, we're not totally sure what that's going to look like or the timeline yet, but we're working towards that. Very cool. Yeah, I, I know that the pandas have been here for a while. Mm-hmm. And actually, when I interviewed uh, Kristen uh, to mm-hmm. do this, uh, you know, the episode a while ago, um, I I am normally the nicest, most chill dude <laughs> because I respect that I'm coming into, you know, a place and I'm being treated usually very well and getting behind-the-scene access and all kinds of cool stuff, and I try to be respectful. I may have 
pushed just a little, and Kristen was very cool, but I was like, please, please, can we go see the pandas? Can we go? And she's like, they're at the hospital. We're not going to the hospital. I'm like, right. But also, okay, I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> so I am yeah. so excited to see these girls. So, so yes, they, um, at least uh, their new area does give us a lot more room to be able to do stuff with. Um, they are still slightly nervous about new people, uh, only because uh, even though their habitat is pretty much mostly done at this point. We actually do still have a lot of construction going on in the area with the landscaping and different features that are being added to the other habitats. So there is still a lot of movement and noise going on in their world. Um, and that can be uh, kind of nerve wracking for pandas too at some point. So we're still working um, certain days they're out on their habitat. Other days they may have access inside. So they have their choice of being in or out. Some days, if we know there's a lot going on, we may just keep them inside. Um, so we're really working each day to be flexible and make sure that we're giving them the correct space for what they need. Of course, always about the animal welfare, mm -hmm. and I love that so, so much. Um, so tell me about some individual personalities, because boy, do they have them. Yes, <laughs> yes. So Lulu is definitely the most, um, I would say, somewhat outgoing and also curious of the three. Um, she is usually the first to come down to investigate new people or new enrichment items or a new training device. Um, she's kind of all about, okay, let me see what you got. Um, and she is highly food motivated, especially if you happen to have grapes. <laughs> um, she loves, loves, loves her grapes. Uh, overall, all three of them are actually surprisingly very picky eaters. Uh, I have been in touch with their previous keeper from Kansas City, and we believe that may have been something they learned from their mother, as she is also a very picky eater. Um, but uh, they do love their grapes um, and some raisins and craisins uh, we use for specific training. Um, but uh, there's a lot of foods such as apple, pear, banana, um, that are normally items that we would use with any red panda diet or in the very least for training um, tools. And these three just absolutely don't like any of those other fruits. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you say apple? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have met pandas that don't like pears, don't like bananas. I have never. Right. I have, I have fed 30 red pandas. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing I can tell you is that grapes are always number one, but apples are number 1.0. Right. I have never heard of that. That's yes. crazy. So, and it's actually been something that we've tested multiple times now where I've tried to specifically hand them pieces of apple off tongs. Um, I've also just left pieces with the rest of their food to see if they'll eat them when no one's around. Um, they absolutely will not touch them. Interestingly, though, they do really like applesauce. <laughs> uh, so we we use pandas are so weird yes, i love it uh which is part of the reason i love them too yeah, uh, yes. but uh they uh we do use unsweetened applesauce as a form of enrichment occasionally it's not something they get every day but uh we may spread it over their normal diet or we may spread it on enrichment from time to time and uh, they will actually eat regular unsweetened applesauce just not actual chunks of apples um, so back to their personalities. Um, Lulu's definitely the most outgoing. Um, Penny, initially when they came in, Penny was the most skittish, 
Um, but she has really started to come out of her shell now. And um, she is now the one that's kind of sitting in the middle where Lulu will definitely be the first to come over. But Penny's getting a bit braver and braver now. Oh, that's really cool. Because um, I remember early on yeah, in the video, she in the was first, very, yeah. yeah. Um, so then Coco has been the other one that sort of flipped where she was sort of in the middle to start with. And now she seems to be the most cautious. Um, a lot of that seems to be due to just the amount of construction that we still have going on. And she takes a little extra time to settle into new places and new people. Um, so we've had to keep an eye on her just with all the noise that we do have going on. But she seems to be settling in a bit more now. Awesome. That's very cool. I'm curious. You had mentioned breeding. Yes. And it's obviously a brand new building. Mm -hmm. So um, why did Sarah Glass send you three females? So <laughs> the, this, the new building and the habitat were built um, with the idea of breeding in mind. So we have the space. We have the capability to separate um, pandas in various different ways if needed. Um, and... We, that was one of the goals of this area because of the fact that we did not have that capability in the old area. Um, the, we did get the three girls for right now. Um, mainly that was because of what the SSP needed. And also with any, uh, new habitat within a zoo, sometimes it takes a year or so to really figure out the area on, from a keeper and logistical standpoint of to just figure out how we need to move animals through the area, what works best, what doesn't. So actually having the three girls for at least a year, maybe even two, um, actually helps us really settle into the area. And then when we get into a breeding situation, hopefully later on, um, we're going to be a lot more comfortable with bringing a male in, knowing how to do introductions and um, knowing how to best work in the space as well too. That makes a lot of sense. I vote that you guys get three males and just, <laughs> just breed away and have all the cubs. <laughs> I Yeah, that's all based on the SSP. No, I know, I know. I've, I've had Sarah on yes. the podcast. She's incredible. Yes. But um, I still vote that way. I vote <laughs> for a lot of things at zoos. I have no say, but uh, <laughs> I vote anyway. <laughs> Since you guys were like getting this new area that was going to be panda-centric, uh, what kind of thought went into planning the area and, and you know, planning for this? Uh, there was a lot of thought that went in. Um, the, the design started a few years ago. Um, in building a new habitat within a zoo, we always know that we kind of start out with a bigger idea. And chances are in construction and budget adjustments and stuff like that, we're never going to end up with that first picture. Um, what it becomes the end result is usually step 10 of a redesign. Sure, sure. So uh, we always know that it's not going to look like our first idea. Um, one of the things that got transformed in this one specifically is we had an idea initially for a log formation, and that eventually got changed into a large rock formation. Um, so again, it still serves the same function. Um, part of the reason for that rock formation is it actually has an air conditioning unit mounted underneath of it. Nice. And there's a cave where the pandas can sit in and it will actually blow air conditioned air on them during the summer so that they're more comfortable outside in the summer in our, uh, hotter temps. So the log formation was an idea that came out of, um, initial designs we were looking at from things in Nepal, 
Um, I actually had a chance to travel to Nepal with the Red Panda Network in 2016 oh, <laughs> on nice. one of their eco trips. Nice. So um, there were a lot of ideas that I brought back from that and pictures of different um, ecosystems and structures. Oh, I love um, this so much. That's so, so cool. Um, not that keepers necessarily get all the design say, but um, it's a combo of ideas that we submit and the curators and the architectural company. Um, so it, it really becomes a whole conglomeration of different ideas and things. And as I said, it changes during construction and we understand that. Uh, so, uh, so, but we, we work to really, um, mimic the natural habitat too. So, um, the construction company put in the rock formation and, um, some, there was a plan for some live trees to be put in the habitat to eventually provide shade and the pandas can actually climb in those. Um, and then we had them put some PVC pipes sunk into the ground a few feet. So then we can actually put vertical pieces of perching in there to then anchor other pieces too. Um, so there's multiple pipes in the ground there. We're not always going to use all of them at the same time. Um, but that gives us a lot of capability, um, to change out things when we need to. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Oh, that's so cool. I, I love <laughs> just all of it. Just all of it. I love the uh, story. The Nepal thing is just really, really cool to me. Um, it was. What, tell it, me about your trip. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Um, probably one of the most amazing trips of my life. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there's not, I, I always get a bit speechless <laughs> when I try to talk about it. Um uh, but it definitely, um, it definitely enhanced my world professionally, um, being that I was able to go on my trip, we spotted three wild pandas, which was so jealous, um, which was a really good number for the time. Um, I actually know that now they're seeing eight to 10 per trip, um, which is pretty amazing. (laughs) Um, and that's just showing you that what the work they're doing on the ground there is working and bringing that population back. Um, but yeah, we were actually able to see three wild red pandas and it gave me a lot of ideas, um, seeing their natural habitat of ideas I could bring back and, you know, whether it was, um, putting some new features into our old habitat and then helping build and design this one. Um, it really gave me those different ideas of what sort of landscape they actually use. Yeah. Makes sense. That's, uh, did I mention I'm jealous? <laughs> I might have mentioned that already. Um, very cool. So real quick, uh, because I, I I tend to only focus on red pandas, but I have <laughs> I have fans that listen like other animals for some reason. Um, so you guys actually have one of the coolest otter exhibits I've ever seen. Thank you. So tell me about it and your otters. So that was designed with the Grizzly Ridge section, which opened in 2013. Um, so we have... Um, a large, large pool that we recently answered this question for another um, media thing where uh, the large pool holds about fifteen to 16,000 gallons of water. Uh, and then there's a waterfall that connects that to a smaller pool. And then we also have a land area, which is grass covered with some different logs and rocks and different features to it for the otters. Um and we actually actually also have an outdoor off habitat space up there as well um, with multiple bedrooms inside the building too. Uh, so that has been a great otter area for us. Um, currently we have two otters. Um, they are 
currently alternating out on Habitat each day. We have Molly, our female, who we've actually had since 2013. Um, and then we recently got in a new male named Stratton. He just came to us a couple months ago. So we are still working through the introduction process. They aren't totally together yet. Um, we're hoping that we'll proceed over the next few months, but we got to move at their pace. Of course, uh, of course. And uh, so, but uh, it was really interesting to watch Stratton uh, his first few days out on the main habitat. Uh, we know that the area that we have is bigger than what he has previously seen before. He was actually a rescue as a pup down in uh, Louisiana. Um, so we know that the spaces he has had before aren't quite as big as ours. Um, our area also has a feature of a slide for the public that actually goes through the pool of the otter habitat. It's so um, cool. Which is a lot of fun. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing lately is it's taking Stratton just a little time to get used to the fact of people being in that space. We recently just reopened the slide for our summer season. Uh, we do have to close it each winter. So uh, Stratton's still kind of getting used to where people are all the time. Uh, but uh, he's doing real well out there. So uh, And Molly really likes uh, interacting with people at the window a lot, too. That's awesome. So, uh, I, I, gee, I wonder what the answer is going to be. <laughs> Conservation organization you'd like to give a shout out to? Uh, oh. Definitely Red Panda Network. I'm shocked. <laughs> Talk about them. Yeah, they've been one of my favorites, obviously, for several years now. Um, I first kind of got involved with them in 2010 with the uh, inaugural International Red Panda Day. All right. Um, so they uh, they actually had reached out to a lot of zoos um, promoting the event. And um, so we decided to put together a small event here, which has since grown each year a little bit. And uh, so I initially started making some contacts through then and uh, a little while later in 2015, we were able to get them listed as part of our Akron Zoo Conservation Fund. So um, Akron Zoo actually does directly um, donate to Red Panda Network each year now. Um, and through some uh, extra contacts I made with um, that procedure, um, they actually send, ended up sending me more information on the eco trips. Um, I knew I knew the trips had existed at that point, but Initially for me, it was one of those far off, someday, somehow type things. And I got some more information on it at the end of 2015, really started considering it. Um, and by January of 2016, I said, okay, I'm doing this. And uh, the trip was November of 2016. So it was absolutely life-changing. Um, besides just the animal and conservation side of it, really getting to meet and know the people there. Um any conservation work, uh, you have to include the local communities. Um, if they're not on board, it's not going to work. Um, and I think the Red Panda Network does a great job at that type of outreach. Uh, and it was really eye-opening just to meet those people and um, see the work they're doing on the ground there. Awesome. I love it so much. Um and yeah, as you have, as you said, that the 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 level of success there is just mm -hmm. undeniable. Um, very cool. And then now it is time for the Rasafari poop story. Poop story. Okay. <laughs> so red pandas have an interesting process where they are classified as carnivores because their digestive system is set up like a carnivore, um, similar to a large cat or a large canine, um, but. 
they eat a lot of plant material as 95% of their diet in their natural habitat is bamboo. So they actually have specialized bacteria in their gut that allows them to break down that bamboo. Uh, That being said, periodically they have to shed that bacteria and grow some new, new stuff in there. And uh, when they do that, that line, that bacterial lining comes out in their poop, basically just looks like mucusy poop. Um, and during the day or two that that happens, the pandas don't feel so great. They're a little bit lethargic. They may not eat as normally, but then within 24 to 48 hours, they're fine and they're back to being their normal selves. Um, so some red panda experts just refer to it as the blahs. Which I love so much. <laughs> uh, but uh, different individual pandas go through it at different frequencies. So that is always something that we're tracking. Uh, but it is one of those weird red panda facts that makes them so unique and part of the reason I love them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you very much for doing this. You're welcome. I super appreciate it. All right. So tell me who you are and what you do here at Akron. So my name is Elena Bell, and I'm the marketing and PR manager here at the Akron Zoo. Uh, I run our social media, our website, our media relations, and so much more. Very cool. Um, So tell uh, tell me why I'm interviewing you. So we are planning to open our brand new area, the Laner Family Foundation Wild Asia, on May 29th. So as the opening approaches, we are getting very excited to showcase this brand new area, which will feature Sumatran tigers, red pandas, and white cheek gibbons. Yep, it will feature red pandas and some other stuff. I kid, I kid. <laughs> Don't worry, we're just as excited about the red pandas as you are. Oh, I know, I know. So let's talk first about that, though, because you are responsible for something that is pretty cool, pretty popular, and pretty viral right now. Yeah. Tell me about Panda Palace. So Panda Palace uh, started between my boss and I just chatting about how adorable our three new red pandas are. And how- Spoiler alert, I have seen them. They are. It's amazing. They're very adorable, but they're also very personable. And we were like, how can we use this? to promote Wild Asia and showcase them. And so we we developed Panda Palace as a mini-series of our webisodes. So we do just plan to run it through the opening of Wild Asia. And it's just a weekly show that really just showcases the red pandas. They actually determine the storyline every week. So whatever I'm able to film is what we talk about. We're able to get some red panda animal facts in there, some conservation animal facts, but also just with a lot of cuteness. There is a lot of that. And let's let's be honest, it's kind of like a, a reality show. A little bit, a little bit. Um, there is some drama, there is some excitement, and then there's some not excitement because they're sleeping. <laughs> you just, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, that show has been really popular, and for anybody who um, you know is listening to this, if you haven't checked it out yet, definitely make sure you do. Uh, I just got a spoiler alert about the next episode that's coming out, and I'm I'm very excited. So um, yeah, sometimes having insider knowledge is is fun. <laughs> yes, so you can. It's on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website AkronZoo.org. So you can catch up. The we are on episode 14. So. There's a lot to, to watch there, usually between two and five minutes. And the length of each episode is determined by our pandas as well. 
Yes, pandas in production. Gotta love it. Yep. Um, okay, so now that we talked about pandas, let's step back and talk about you for a moment. Okay. Uh, what, what brought you to the field? So for me, my degree is in advertising. So I, I'm from the marketing world. Um, but for me, I really wanted to go into the nonprofit world. I wanted to do good with my degree. I didn't want to push toothpaste or things like that. Um, the agency world just was not for me. So when I needed an internship to graduate, I went out and looked in the Akron area, which is where I'm from, like a great nonprofit. And I came across the zoo and I was like, this looks like so much fun. I want to work at the zoo. And so I got the internship and learned so much, not only in my profession and working in an in-house marketing way, but also in the zoo world and what zoos do and how they care for their animals. And I fell in love. And um, so I didn't get a full-time job right away, but I didn't let them forget me. So I was constantly like, hey, guys, here I am. Don't you love me? I volunteered. Um, We are a zoo um, that's funded by a levy. So when we were up for renewal of our levy, I volunteered for that and helped campaign. What's a levy? A levy. So we are um, supported by public funds, so from people's taxes. And so, so they have to vote to support us every so often. Um, so yeah, so I support it. I helped campaign, things like that. And when a full-time job came up, I was like, ooh, pick me. And they haven't gotten rid of me ever since. <laughs> That's awesome. So since you don't come from like an animal background, um, what was the thing that shocked you the most when you started working at a zoo? I think all of the conservation that a zoo does out in across the world, basically. So we're not just caring for animals. They're not here for our entertainment. I mean, that is a great added bonus, but really that's here because somebody who gets face-to-face with a lion might not ever have that experience elsewhere in their life. And that might build a connection to help them care for animals in our planet and to save it for future generations that they might not have done so without that connection and seeing that lion face-to-face that know that, wow, if I support this company over this company, they're actually out there using sustainable palm oil as an example or something that I am helping support, maybe using less plastic or things like that. Um, so it's just, it's really crazy how much we're out there supporting animals across the whole world, not just here at the Akron Zoo. I love that. And what is your favorite animal here? Oh, that would be, so I'm not a species-oriented person. I am an animal-specific. I have a whole list, but at the top of it is our grizzly bears, Jackson and Cheyenne. Who you have heard, uh, if you've listened to all the old podcasts. Um, Kristen Scaglione was uh, one of their keepers and is on there, and I got to feed them. And it was amazing. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen. They are hilarious. Like I mentioned, I do our social media, so they give me a lot of really great content. Jackson is such a goober. (laughs) His favorite toys are his feet and sticks, and it's just hilarious. And then his sister's the opposite. She loves puzzles and is so smart. They're just hilarious. But um, Lulu, our red panda, she's quickly rising in the ranks, though. So if she keeps it up, she might push out Jackson Cheyenne. You never know. I mean, she's kind of a star. She is. Tell me some stories about your time with Lulu. Well, let's see. Um, I... The very first episode of Panda Palace, I was able to go in 
and meet the pandas. And right away, Lulu's like, what is that in your hand? That is a camera. I would like that camera. Please, may I have it? Except for I don't think she said please. <laughs> uh, there were several instances where she, I, I didn't know I needed to have my guard up. And she was snatching the camera from me. Um, I'm really sad it didn't come across in the video that I couldn't show that. Um, she, yeah, so she was trying to steal the camera. She was constantly what we've dubbed camera boops. So she's coming right up and she just touches her nose to the camera and like, I want this. And I might have a tooth mark in the side of my camera from Lulu, um, but that's okay. It It's meant to have some animal love. So not too worried about it. But yeah, she was very interested in the camera and she has ever since. It's like she knows when the camera's on her, <laughs> I need to be a star. <laughs> and she really, really is. Like, even as we were uh, walking away from, uh, you know, I was very lucky in that Elena took me back to see the uh, the Wild Asia area, though it's not open yet. And um, when we were leaving, uh, we were walking right by the kind of entrance ramp that the pandas have to get into their exhibit from their indoor building. And suddenly a head popped out and was following us and watching and was literally mm-hmm. like, hey guys, look look at me, I'm over here. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, yeah, the, there's some pretty special pandas. Yes, here. and I, I can't wait for everyone to meet them actually in person because I think they're going to love them. Now just remember that pandas are not warm weathered animals, so they might not be as active in the summer. There's probably gonna be a lot of sleeping but once you come to fall and winter, they're going to be pretty active, and I can't wait to have everyone see them. Yeah, they are pretty, pretty special. Um, so let's talk about the uh, the Gibbon exhibit um, because it's pretty darn special. Yeah, so we have one of the largest and most innovative Gibbon habitats in a northern zoo. So Gibbons are the opposite of red pandas as they are a warm-weathered species. So... We don't have as much flexibility as maybe a southern zoo does, but so in the northern zoos, we have one of the largest gibbon habitats. But what's really cool about that is we have what's called a day room. So we have an indoor habitat that people can see them throughout the whole winter um, and see them interact and climb and everything. And then the outdoor habitat that they can enjoy in the summer, which has probably one of the coolest fake trees I have ever seen. It's huge. And it's not real. It's actually made out of concrete. Um, but it you would never be able to tell, and I don't think the Gibbons are going to be able to tell. Yeah, no, absolutely. It looks amazing. And uh, going along with that, there are, let's see, I'm going to do this from memory. One, two, three, five maybe viewing areas, right? Yes. And they're all at different heights mm-hmm. and different uh, like windows. It's not just like one large window. And the cool thing about that to me is that um, the average uh, person – the average zoo guest spends about seven seconds at a viewing window, which is just astonishing to me. But um, so if you give them five different places and vantage points where they're seeing the same animal, what ends up happening is now they're spending 35 seconds. And in 35 seconds, especially with an animal as active as gibbons, that you're going to see something. Mm -hmm. And that's going to freeze you in place and make you stay longer which makes you care more, maybe makes you check out the signs, which leads to more interest, interest in their conservation, all the good things. Um, I just, I love how open and innovative that space mm-hmm. is. Uh, I, you know, and there's a slide. Yes. And um, 
I got to tell you, you know, one of my least favorite things about zoos sometimes is when they take spaces to put up playgrounds and stuff when I was like for a long time, because I'm like, but give me more animals, whatever. But I've come to learn from doing this podcast that, you know, having kids engaged, especially Mm -hmm. if they have wandering um, attention spans, uh, is really important. And having the slide there will also then trap the parents there until the gibbons move more and then you stay longer. And I just think that exhibit is set up so well to encourage people to chill Mm -hmm. and learn. Yes. And also one of the really great things about the different vantage points is Gibbons, they like to spend a lot of their time up high and in the trees, so you have a better chance than multiple viewing points to see them. But also our male Milo, he actually likes to come down on the ground and walk around. So at the ground level, you might see him. So uh, you have multiple opportunities to see them at different levels. And so I think it's going to be really great. And I think we have a treehouse, which is where the slide is connected with a little ledge that the Gibbons can hang out on. And I think they're going to really enjoy that because they're very personable, like the red pandas. And I think they're really going to love interacting with our guests. Definitely. And um, for those of you who haven't seen a gibbon walking, it's weird, y'all, because they have really long arms Mm -hmm. and they kind of seem like they don't know what to do with them. Uh, We got to see Milo uh, on the ground a bit Mm -hmm. today. And um, it's just, it's a sight. I would look it up. It's really, it is. It's, like weird when you first see it and then it quickly becomes adorable. Oh, it is because adorable, yes. His arms are longer than his torso and his legs combined. And so he has to hold him up at an odd angle as he walks and stuff and it kind of and he like wiggles as he walks. It it's just it's very heartwarming in my opinion. It is. And also, uh, you know, for those of you who can't see, uh, I, I'm sorry to tell you that Elena did an impression I, of it. I just did. Now. It was it was pretty fantastic. I did. I, like I said, it's this behind the scenes access stuff that makes it all so special <laughs> for me. <laughs> so um in the interview uh, about the tigers, we talked a little bit about the training wall. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, before we touch on that, just a quick uh, bit of info for everyone else. There's also a given training wall. Yes, which yes, is there is. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but so we talked about the tiger training wall and that there's some seating there. Uh, but I don't know that we properly conveyed the majesty of that mm-hmm. area. So uh, talk to me a little bit more about that and what makes your tra- your training area unique. Yeah, so there is a training wall um, at the tiger area that has some seating. It's an amphitheater seating, but it's almost like it has quite a few rows of seating. Um, I think we can fit in non-COVID times maybe up to 100 people there um, that could pack in and see this uh, training wall with the tigers, have them demonstrate these different behaviors that they're trained to do to help them participate in their own health care and to really show off all that hard work our keepers do. But also we could do a different education program. So we have a lot of animal ambassadors uh, that we have here for our education programs that go out to schools and libraries, but they also can go out and around the zoo as well. So we could do some some um, programs there. Um, it's going to be really great for school groups because we have a lot of school groups who come and visit for field trips so we can do educational programs with them and have them all in one space. So it's going to be really cool. Yeah, it really is. And also one of the coolest things about this is uh, the wall when they're not doing training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Normally with our training walls, they are wooden doors, but for the gibbon and the tiger training walls, it's actually going to be glass doors. So even when they're shut, they guests still have that access to view the habitat area. 
And just to be clear for somebody who hasn't seen this, a training wall is uh, where the area, like you open up the glass in this case, and there is mesh there um, so that you can still like reach through with a, a tong or something and give the, uh, the tiger a treat for the training mm-hmm. and you can interact just like a normal protected contact animal. Yes. Um, and then for $10 a person after each training session, you can reach in and pet the, t- no, I'm kidding. I'm just, <laughs> this is actually a joke that Elena made to me and I'm now stealing from my podcast. <laughs> yes. It's okay. I, I share. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So what uh, what do you guys have planned around the official opening other than being on an awesome podcast and promoting it? So um, the probably about the three weeks before the opening, I am going social media and media heavy. So I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews, a lot of posts, um, really ramping up the opening and getting people excited. And then um, the few days before, um, we have a staggered opening. So the Thursday before we open – is going to be for our VIPs, so our high-end donors and then the media. They get to come in and have a little bit of a sneak peek. And then the day before, so the Friday, our members get a special preview of it. So um, anywhere from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. I'm sorry, did you say 9 p.m.? Yep, they get all day. That's amazing. Yep, and from 5 to 9, they have the whole zoo to themselves. So all the animals are out. They get an exclusive member-only night at the zoo. Unbelievable. Yeah. If you guys haven't done a night at the zoo, there are only a few zoos that offer them. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing. You see different behaviors, animals acting differently. It it looks different. It smells different. Some of my favorite zoo memories are wandering around the San Diego Zoo until 9 o'clock because mm-hmm. in the summer they're open regularly until that time. Um, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. It's worth checking out. Absolutely. Our animals, they can tell time. Like, they know when we're about to close and, oh, we're getting close to dinner time. Let's go. Let's go. And stuff. So when they're out later, they're like, this is different. This is new. What's going on here? And so, yeah, they tend to be more active. And then the evenings in the summer tend to be cooler. So they're not going to be sleeping as much because it's a little cooler. They're going to be more active. So it's a completely different experience visiting a zoo in the evening than during the day. Yeah, that's really awesome. And then tell me about your uh, actual opening day. Yeah, and so grand opening is going to be May 29th for everyone to come and enjoy. And we do have some fun activities throughout the day. Um, Akron is actually a sanctuary city for refugees. And we have a very large um, Asian community, especially Nepalese people who uh, reside here. So we uh, are working with them and to have them do some different entertainment, some singing, some dancing. I believe there's a martial arts demonstration happening. Nice. Uh, so it's going to be really cool for them to showcase their their culture here at the Akron Zoo that we're trying so hard to represent with Wild Asia. So it's really exciting that we have the this group here locally. Very cool. And I noticed that the exhibits and the, the whole area um, is really set up to seem like you're walking through Asia. Mm-hmm. Um How did you guys go about making sure that it was culturally appropriate and sensitive and all of that? So we work with groups directly. So we've been able to connect with some groups here, uh, some Asian groups, and we can say, hey, is this appropriate? Is this appropriate? And they have guided us to make sure that, yeah, no cultural appropriation is happening um, and that everything is accurate. So we go straight to the source. I love that. And I mean, I'm not an expert on Asian culture, but it really 
felt good to mm-hmm. me there. Nothing mm-hmm. felt forced. Nothing felt cheesy. Um, and it's, it's awesome. And then one of the, the biggest issues at the Akron Zoo is the, um, the hill. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and this is providing a, a workaround for the hill, right? Yes. So our old area, Tiger Valley, had a wraparound route up to the top of the hill. So it was like a switchback. So it didn't seem like you were climbing a giant hill. Uh, but when that closed so we could demolish it, for Wild Asia, so that has been closed for about two and a half years. So people have been having to go up and down the giant hill. So we're very excited. With Wild Asia, our ADA-accessible switchback pathway is back. Ooh. So no more climbing that giant hill because I can tell you, it doesn't matter how great of shape you are in, you are going to be winded walking up that hill. So don't ever feel bad that you're winded walking up the hill. Everyone is. And now, instead of doing that, you can go and see red pandas and gibbons and tigers and uh, have an easier walk. So Mm -hmm. pretty solid, pretty solid. Um, Is there anything else that you wanted to say about Wild Asia or anything like that? So when Wild Asia opens on May 29th, um, just know that for COVID-19 safety precautions, we are asking that all guests reserve their tickets in advance. So uh, we ask that you go online, reserve your tickets in advance before coming to the zoo. And that's just an extra safety precaution that we have in place to help control crowd numbers. Very smart. And we're still wearing masks at this zoo, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyone 10 and older is required to wear a mask throughout the whole zoo. Very good. I love that. Thank you for keeping us safe. Absolutely. We are also keeping our animals safe. True. Very true and very important. Um, All right. And so then how about a conservation organization that you'd like to tell people about? One that hasn't been touched on is the Red Wolf Coalition. So red wolves are the most endangered canine species in the world. There's estimated to be about 20 left. So we support the Red Wolf Coalition and all of the work that they are doing to protect that 20 wolves that are left and to keep this species around for years to come. Very good. Love that. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Ron Safari Poop Story not really a poop story. So I'm not a keeper. I don't work with the animals on a daily basis, um, but I do get to interact with them by taking pictures and video. And the second time that I got to go behind the scenes and meet Milo, our new white cheek gibbon, he, uh, he was, I was really focused on the camera and he was really focused on me because he really wanted to pee on me. And so he kept trying to pee on me and I'd be dodging the pee streams basically (laughs) And one time I was really focused on the camera and getting a good shot of him. And he he noticed that I was distracted and he got me. (laughs) And he got me good. I was covered in gibbon pee. Nice. And the question is, did you get the shot? No. Oh, I won. I did not. He did. He very much won. I love it. Um, Alana, thank you so much for setting all of this up. Absolutely. For working with me on this and, and of course, for doing the interview. And thanks for coming out and making the trek to Akron, Ohio. Oh, it's the greatest city in the world. <laughs> well, if you ask LeBron. <laughs> well, that was an awesome time, and I'm sure you could tell that. We had a lot of fun. I have two quick stories that I want to share, and uh, then we will get to the Stiderk. First is that um, 
I was told very specifically that the pandas were not going to be out the day that I was at the zoo. So I was a little bummed. I was hoping to see these three amazing little girls. But uh, when we went on our tour, boom, there they were. They had come out after the construction and I got some bonus panda time that I wasn't expecting. So, yeah, that was good. And uh, the other story is just, you know, it's hard to quantify, but... um. I know that they talked a lot in this uh, episode about how they are a team and how they really love each other and how they're kind of like a family, but it was so evident uh, when Brenna first showed up, Tyler and her were picking on each other, and then uh, Brenna was helping Lisa feel not nervous about the interview, and Elena was just just running the whole thing in such a cool, fun, relaxed way. It was awesome to see. Um, the Akron Zoo is really amazing. As a matter of fact, when I was leaving the building uh, at the end of the day, uh, somebody else just stopped and was like, I don't know who you are. Who are you? Hi. And it wasn't in a rude, like, who are you? What are you doing here kind of way. It was literally someone who was just curious and wanted to say hi and make me feel comfortable. And I thought that was awesome. So uh, Akron Zoo, wild. Asia. Check it out when you get the chance, y'all. It's an amazing place with amazing animals and amazing people. You can also check them out online, Akron Zoo on the Facebook, at Akron Zoo on Instagram, and AkronZoo.org. And now here are those previously promised Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.